When I'm uh, out and about or when I get to meet various people, I rarely introduce myself as pastor. I don't often go and say, hey, good to see you. I'm Pastor Joel. And it's not that I don't want people to know the role that I play or not that I'm excited and honored to be in this role. But I don't want my title to become a barrier for some people. I don't want them to think one thing. And, and I realize it may be a bridge to some conversations, but I, I, it also may be something that hinders other people because I, I don't want them to think that I'm some holy man. I'm ordinary. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And it's interesting, when people do find out I'm a pastor, their responses are quite varied. Some people will... Um, you know, sometimes they're encouraged and curious. Oh, you're a pastor. Oh, go ahead. And they might ask me to pray for them about something. Sometimes people are taken back. Sometimes they very quickly clean up their language as if my holy ears have never heard such things or my holy mouth has never uttered such things. Sometimes they express an apology for things that they have said. But then there are times when I'm surprised by their underwhelming expectations of what a pastor would be. A couple weeks ago, uh, about six weeks ago now, I was helping out at John Poole Middle School for the uh, primary election. I was one of the election judges. I sat behind a desk and welcomed people, welcomed some of you guys as you came in. Well, the night before, we had to go set up. And so I met a man who was there. His name is Homayun, and he and I were paired together to get the registration table ready. So we put the tables out. We got the machines out. All this stuff has lots of cables. And so one of our jobs was to make it look as neat as possible. So they gave us a bunch of painter's tape and said, make it look beautiful. So we got on the ground, and we taped up as much as we could to the underside of the table so nobody could see it. We ran it out and so taped it on the floor so nobody would um, trip over anything. But, I, you know, it wasn't the, th we were in the cafeteria at John Poole Middle. It's, it hadn't been cleaned in a while. I, mean, I don't know. No, no offense to any of the custodial staff over there. But I was dirty when I got up off the floor. I felt a little bit like a mechanic, which is a role I've never, never seen myself playing because I don't know anything about how cars work mechanically. But one of the things, that I bring that up because the next day, one of the ladies who was there the night before was working in the afternoon. And we ended up working next to each other. And through the course of our conversation, because you know how it happens, there's lulls. Everybody comes at 7.30 in the morning and at noon and about 6 o'clock. And in between, it's pretty slow. So we struck up a conversation. And then she found out, she's like, oh, you're a pastor. And then her comment after that was quite interesting. She said, I'm surprised that you would get on the floor and work under a table like that. I was, I didn't know what to say. It's like, well, to me, it's just something that everybody would do, no matter what their role. And it saddened me to think that how often had, now she's not a believer, I know, I know her religious background. And so it's, it saddens me to think that she would come across other pastors or other religious leaders who would not degrade themselves in her eyes to do that. She was impressed, but 
to me, it seems like it wasn't a big deal. And that's why I was underwhelmed by her expectations, thinking that, well, getting on the floor is something that everybody should do. And I tell you that not because I want you to think more highly of me, because I do think that task is something that any of us should do. I think that task, had Jesus been an election judge at the primary election, that is a task that Jesus would have done. And how do we know that? Because as Jordan read earlier, we're going to see Jesus did things that were even more degrading than laying on, the, on a dirty floor. So if you have your Bibles and want to open up to John chapter 13, um, we're going to look over those verses. If you want to have your Bible open, there will be some verses on the screen. You can take notes. And I, I understand the, the kids' bulletins have lots of cool things to color and fill out. So you guys are welcome to jump in on that, even big kids, right, middle schoolers? And, and while you're turning there, I do need to make a little bit of a correction. A few weeks ago, I mentioned something about a division in the book of John. And essentially, the correct division is between verses one or chapters 1 and 12, you have what we would call the book of signs. I put it before chapter 12, after, verse, after chapter 12. I know it's a minute thing, but I want you to understand. I think it's important for us to realize as we view the book of John, as we read it and study it, we see all of these things that he did in public, all of the signs, all of the teaching, all of the encounters, all of the conflict really took place in the first 12 chapters. Chapter 13, through the end of the book, aside from his crucifixion and resurrection, was very private. It was time that he spent with his disciples. It was, his, it was what some call the book of glory, as he reveals his glory to his disciples. So here we are in chapter 13, as Jesus moves toward the cross, toward his hour, as John likes to refer to it. Jesus sits down with his disciples for a special meal. The other, uh, the other gospel writers suggest that this was sort of a Passover meal that he was having with them. And during the meal, he does what is unthinkable. He washes his disciples' feet. He, the master, serves his followers. And I think one of the things that we find in this passage is that Jesus didn't just do this randomly. His heart, his head, and his hands were all involved in what he was doing. And so let's look at that. First of all, we see, if you want to take notes, here's where the blanks begin, I think. Um, the heart of service is love. The heart of service is love. We sang about love a little bit. We sang about the love that God has for us. But look back in John chapter 13, verse 1. It said, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And if, over the next several weeks, or over the next several chapters, um, we're going to get to see this theme of love coming back over and over and over again. I agree, Izzy, I agree. And John clearly notes that Jesus loved his disciples. His ministry among them was fueled by love. His love for them didn't stop until he accomplished what he needed to. In fact, I would say his love continues even today. But think about the guys that are around him. Think about this mixture of gentlemen that Jesus has pulled around himself. You have the brothers, James and John, and, and they are, they're called the sons of thunder. 
in many ways because I think they were a bit hot-headed. They like like any other good brother, bad brother, whatever would do, they would, there was a competition between them. But in addition to that, they were a little bit um, power hungry. These are the guys who took Jesus aside and said, hey, Jesus, when you go into your glory, can we sit on your right and your left? Those are some of the guys that Jesus loved. Then you also have Peter, who, according to John MacArthur, had a a foot-shaped mouth, right? He loved to open his mouth and insert his foot and chew vigorously because sometimes he spoke before he thought, as we saw in the passage that Jordan read. And then you have Peter's brother, Andrew. Andrew is is the least known of the inner circle. He's soft-spoken. He's the guy who would make very small demonstrations of faith. He's the guy, when Jesus fed the 5,000, he's the guy who said, hey, Lord, here's a a few loaves and fish, but what are these among so many? Andrew's also the guy who brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus loved him. But then you think about Philip. MacArthur calls Philip the bean counter. He's the one who's at the feeding of the 5,000. He's the one who said, Lord, it would take so much denarii for us to do that. We don't have that. It would take a year's wage for us to feed all these people. So you could say Philip had a flair for the obvious and not always an optimistic flair at that. Then you have Nathaniel, best known as Bartholomew. Nathaniel's the one that Jesus saw from a distance and he said, there's an Israelite a man in whom there is no deceit. He was an honest guy. Jesus loved him. Then you have Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, who was seen seen as a traitor to other people. Yet Jesus called him and said, I want you. I love you. Then you have Thomas, who's called the twin. I wonder why. And, and yet we also give him the surname Tom, the, or, or the prefix Doubting Thomas because he's the guy who even after Jesus rose from the dead and all the testimony that was there, he said, I'm not going to believe it until I put my, fing, my hands on his scars and put my hands in his side. Jesus loved him. You have James the Less. How would you like that name? I'm not the first James The son of thunder, son of Zebedee, I'm James the less. Then you have Simon the zealot. Here's a political activist. Here's here's a guy who wanted Jesus to come in power. And Jesus loved him. Then you have, I love this, Judas, not Iscariot. How would you like, almost everywhere it's Judas is referenced. It's either Judas Iscariot or Judas not Iscariot. So that we would, how would you like the only thing that you're known for is not being that guy? And yet Jesus loved him. And then finally we get to Judas Iscariot, the disciple that betrayed Jesus, the disciple that this very night that we're studying would go out and start the process to send Jesus over to be arrested and killed. Some of these men were notable. Some we might even consider notorious. Some were practically invisible. Some were ambitious and others were minimalistic. And John notes that Jesus loved them. 
And I want you to imagine being some of these guys, knowing that you were called out by Jesus, living in the realization that he, of his love for you in all of your strengths and all of your weaknesses. We're going to get to see in several, several weeks just some of the things that Jesus does to reinstate Peter. But the underlying fact is that he loved them all. But not only these 12, because John tells us he loved his own who were in the world. And, and John seems to use that word, his own, to refer to the people, the individuals who have been called out of the world to be his followers. His own didn't just include the 12, his own included many more. In fact, by the time Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, we see that roughly 120 people were, were there in Jerusalem in an upper room praying. Those were his own. Today, roughly a third of the population of the world would identify themselves as followers of Christ. Those are his own. Jesus served these men and women out of love. And, I, and he served you and me out of love. When he came to the cross, he took our shame and humiliation because he loved us, because he loves you exactly who you are. But I want us to think about this for a second. Let's turn it around and not just think about the love that Jesus has for us. Because I think it is important. I think, I think we need to let that weight sink in. Jesus loves you. All of the baggage that you bring, all of the joys that you bring, all of the strengths and weaknesses that you bring, Jesus loves you. But one of the keys in this passage, and I think the main point of this passage, is that Jesus served his disciples, not only because he loved them, but he wanted to give them an example. He wanted to show them this is what you should do. And so I want us to think about the people around us. If we were to turn it around and look at the ways that we serve, do we serve out of unconditional love? Or do we serve generously? Do we serve with no strings attached? Or are we serving in hopes of getting something back? And I'll, I know. Jesus had 12 followers, and some of them were a whole lot easier to love than others. There are people that God calls us to serve who are easier to love, and some are darn hard to love. <laughs> I know I, I'm, I'm difficult to love sometimes. Just ask Danielle. She, she knows I can get in the way sometimes. Jesus knows, Jesus shows us that service comes from a heart of love. But secondly, we see that the head of service is established in truth. You see, when Jesus serves, he's not just serving randomly. He's not looking out there as, as trying to find some sort of uh, motivation, some sort of way to manipulate a situation. Jesus is serving from a foundation of knowledge. Uh, his head is established in truth. Let's look again at verse 1 in, the, in this chapter. It says, Now before the Feast of Passover, when Jesus knew, there's that key word, he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You see, Jesus seemed to know that this was his time. 
If you've, if you've noticed through the book of John, this is the third Passover that we've come to. He didn't know this back in the first Passover. He didn't know it in the second Passover, but he knew that this was the Passover that this would be the end of his earthly life, at least temporarily. But then look down at verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. I know that's not a complete sentence. We'll get to the other part in a moment. You see, Jesus' acts of service that we will see in a few moments were established on certain truths. First of all, it was established on, the, on his authority and his responsibility. Jesus had been given things. The Father had given him, given all things into his hands. His assignment here on earth, his ministry among his disciples, his responsibility to steward that authority was all given by God, and Jesus rested in that. He knew it wasn't given by his disciples. He certainly knew it wasn't given by the religious authorities. He knew God had given him this assignment. But secondly, we see that Jesus also knew securely his origin and his destination. He knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going. Even though he took on human flesh, Jesus, or John helps us understand that Jesus was no mere human. That he had come from God and would return to God. He laid aside his glory in heaven and one day would take it back up again. And we saw this a little bit last week when we briefly considered his prayer in John 17, verse 5. He says, now the now." And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. Jesus' actions weren't rooted in speculation or some, like I said, political manipulation. It was rooted in the confidence of who he is. He knew his identity. He knew what he came to do, and he knew ultimately where he would be going. And, and I think it's important for us to think about that for us in our service. What is going through our minds? When Pastor Aramal might call you up and say, hey, would you volunteer with this? Or would you help out with that? Or, or, or one of the deacons says, hey, we need some people to help out in this. What is your motivation? Is it, is it rooted in insecurity? Oh, I hope someone likes me because I'm doing this. Is it rooted in pride? Well, I'm going I'm to do this because then people will look at me better. Are we trying to get something in return? Are we attempting to get people to think about us in a certain way? Or are we wrapping up our identity in our service? Or are we simply serving rooted in the fact that God has called us. He has given us gifts. He has given us authority. He, my father-in-law likes to talk about the assignments that God places before him. There are assignments, just as Jesus had an assignment, God gives us assignments. And are we rooted in the knowledge he's gifted me to do this for this season? And then also, are we rooted in the knowledge that we were once Sinners who were condemned before God, who are now saved by grace. Are we rooted in that knowledge, knowing that our life here is preparation for what we get to enjoy with God for eternity? 
Jesus had his, his heart of love for his disciples, but we also saw that his head was, was established or was founded on the truths that God had placed before him. But thirdly, we get to see that the hands of service welcome humiliation. The hands of service welcome humiliation. And I know it's a little weird to think about it this way. Why would we want to talk about our own humiliation this way? But look at what it says in verses 4 and 5. You see, John tells us that Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And I think so often the significance of this event is lost on us because of the culture in which we live. I mean, most of us walked in here with closed-toed, closed-heeled shoes. Very few of us live in places where there's a lot of dust and gravel. We would generally walk around and not be too dirty by the time we go to bed. At least our feet wouldn't be unless you're, you like to wear sandals. But in their day, because they didn't have paved roads, people's feet got dirty all the time. And even today, many people in, in Eastern cultures wear sandals, which means their feet get dirty. So they take them off when they go into a house, and then someone should be there to wash them. Bruce Milne notes in his, in his uh, commentary, he said, Proper etiquette taught that guests begrimed from journeying through dusty streets should, upon arrival, have their feet washed by a slave. It was a particularly humble task included in a list of works. Get this, included in a list of works that a Jewish slave would not have been asked to do. So Jesus and his disciples sit down to eat and there's no Gentile there, at least no Gentile slave who would, who would be summoned to wash their feet. Gary Burge in his commentary says that all our ancient sources show that foot washing was a degrading and lowly task. When done by a wife for her husband, a child for his or her parents, a pupil for his teacher, it was always an act of extreme devotion. But since it was an act with social implications, in no way do we find those with higher status washing the feet of those beneath them. And so when Jesus takes off his outer clothing and wraps a towel around himself, he is adopting the posture of a slave. Jesus goes against all of their cultural norms and does the unthinkable. He takes the posture of a slave in this act of service. He willingly lays aside his dignity and his honor for his disciples. And this act of service creates a picture for us of what he would do in a, in a very similar way just a few hours later. I think a lot of this happened the night before he was crucified. So within 24 hours, he's going to be on a cross, nailed hands and feet, pier pierced in his side, a crown of thorns like that on his head, humiliated, dying a criminal's death for you and me. And yet, he's not just an average human being. Here he is willing to wash these feet. He's willing to give up his life. The second person of the Trinity, the God of the universe, taking the cross that we deserve. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, though he was God, this is verses 6 through 8, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be clinged to. 
as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. You see, in coming to earth, Jesus willingly served humanity through humiliation. And then as a a human, he willingly humiliated himself in service to others. Which brings us to the last point that we need to consider in this. See, Jesus, in response to his actions, communicates to his disciples and to us that we should serve others as Jesus served. We should serve others as Jesus served. John writes in chapter 13, verses 12 to 17, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And here we come back to knowledge. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I think I've mentioned it before, to know and not to do is not to know. If you know these things, blessed are you if you will do them. So Jesus demonstrated that as a teacher, he would have been elevated in in the society. He would have been elevated above his disciples. And yet he was willing to wash their feet. As Lord, he demonstrates that he is more than just a teacher. He is their master. And yet he was willing to be humiliated before them. That word in Greek is kyrios, Lord, which refers to someone who has supreme authority. And yet he was willing to serve. No level of service was beneath him. No level of service was beneath Jesus Christ. And to some degree, it's difficult for us to grasp the gravity of this. One commentator described it this way. He said, imagine if the Queen of England in all her aged glory came to your house with her beautiful British accent and began to sweep your kitchen. You would not catch her doing that. And yet the difference between what Jesus, the God of the universe, did and who he was and what he did is far greater than the difference between what the Queen of England might do in sweeping your kitchen. Don Carson says that one of the ways human pride manifests itself in a stratified society is in refusing to take a lower role. But now that Jesus, their Lord and teacher, has washed his disciples' feet, an unthinkable act, there is every reason why why they also should wash one another's feet. And no conceivable reason for refusing to do so. Jesus just laid down the gauntlet. And he gave his disciples no excuse for not following. There is no reason for us not to serve. And so in response, I think we have a few points to ponder. In some ways, the application is not difficult to reach. But remember, Jesus did more than just serve. He did more than just get his hands dirty. 
because he began with his heart. And so I want to ask us to check your heart. John Chris, the Christian comedian, is famous for saying, check your heart. And I'm not talking about the way that John wants us to do that. I'm talking the way that Jesus wants us to check our heart. What is your heart attitude toward others or toward service? Do you truly love those around you? When you serve, is your service out of duty or obligation or is it out of a guilt trip? And sometimes we do get guilted into service. But there's a way that we can even serve in that way out of love. Is your service fueled by love? Is there someone that you would not want to serve? Is any measure of serving beneath you? Oh, that God would give us his heart for others. But in addition to checking our hearts, I think, secondly, we need to remember what is true from God. You see, just as Jesus understood his origin and destination, remember what is true from God about you. If you are a follower of Christ, your sinful origin has been redeemed. Your destination of eternal life has been redeemed and is secure for all time. There is nothing that will take that away from you. Scripture tells us that it has been sealed, that you are sealed. But if you're not yet a follower of Christ, be reminded that your sinfulness still marks you. We all stand condemned in our sin. I stood condemned in my sin until I responded to what Christ had done for me. Jesus served and he took your condemnation and mine. And we simply need to repent of our sin and receive his free gift of grace. But also remember where you stand with him. You are fully loved and, as I said, eternally secure. And your service does not need to gain acclaim. God knows. God sees Find your confidence in him. This morning in the Bible study, we were talking, we got to listen a little bit to John Piper talking about how sometimes people will serve and instead of looking solely to find delight in God or to to give God joy with what they're doing, we start looking elsewhere. And so then we begin to compromise and change what we're doing in order to appease an audience this way rather than pleasing the audience of one vertically. Matthew 6, 4 reminds us that your father who sees in secret will reward you. So seek to please him. But then finally, get your hands dirty. Get your hands dirty. We can't let position, pride, or even preference get in the way of our service to God and others. Whether it's volunteering on a monthly rotation in Kids Connection or in the Adventure Zone or even joining the deacon team or or helping as a greeter, assisting with the Christmas musical, even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, right, you can still help. Or being available to help out at some of the youth events or, or even helping in the thrift shop. Man, what a joy that would be to go and help people find stuff and provide relief for some of the people who spend hours and hours or even coming and helping distribute bread on 
Saturdays or, or as other opportunities come up or even volunteering at WAMCO. Or maybe it's leading worship, using that musical talent or that great speaking voice that God has given you for his glory. There are so many ways that our service can happen in our community and in our church, but getting dirty also might mean really getting dirty, going and helping mowing the grass of that brother and sis or sister in Christ or helping to weed the yard of that person who can't get out and do that or even getting your hands dirty, preparing a meal for that neighbor that you've been in conflict with for 30 years. There are so many ways that we can serve and it's important to serve out of love, firmly founded in the confidence of what we have through Jesus Christ. When Danielle and I were in college, when we graduated, our university, um, and they still do this today, they give all of the graduates a small towel, except the one that we got was, of course, embroidered and had a nice screen printing of the logo of the school and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and one of the things they did for all the graduates is they gave us this towel as a reminder that we are to be servant leaders marked with a passion to minister Christ's redemptive love and truth to a world in need. And so today, as you go out, whether you go out the back or if you sneak out this way, um, we have a towel for you. It's a cheap towel. You can use it. You can put it in your garage. You can, you know, check the oil on your car with it. You can hang it up somewhere. But whatever you do, I want you to remember that Jesus took a towel, probably nicer than this one, and put it around his waist in humility, in humiliation, for his disciples to give us an example so that we would go and do likewise. So as we go, I want us to be thinking about the love that God has for us and the love that we should have for people around us. Thinking about the confidence that we have in knowing who we are in Jesus Christ and recognizing that if Jesus washed his disciples' feet, then surely I can help my neighbor.